The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the great Hank Azaria. The great. Uh, and near great. Depends on which project. I mean, if I were being honest. <laughs> but why be honest? It's a podcast, Hank. <laughs> why? Why tell the truth here? Is that sort of the uh, the motto here? It's a podcast. Lies why tell are preferable. The truth? Yeah. No, I mean, if there's one place you, you can be honest. Well, I was just trying to think if I should start right in on the terrible slight of you leaving me out of the Vanity Fair article. I'd probably let's get that out of should the Should we way. just first get yeah. right right to the fact that there's two there's two pieces of bad news in this podcast. One is that what Brian is referring to. Well, why should you do your dirty work? You tell the folks what you're referring to. No, I mean, I just got, I showed up at a poker game the other night because I play in Hank's poker game. And there was an article all about the poker game in Vanity Fair, an article no, about no, Hank and Vanity Fair. The poker. Well, this is how it was presented it to me. It got mentioned. But how it was presented to me, uh, uh, this article was thrust in my face by our mutual friend, Andy Bellin, who, just to point out that Hank listed all the people who play in the poker game who are even tangentially connected to the business of show. Because that's the question I always ask. Who, who do I, you know, that's all anybody cares about. Who that I know, you know, what actors were in. And, 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 yeah, and, 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 uh, and gleefully left me out of it. Gleefully, yeah, I, I was giddy. Giddy. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Well, you weren't giddy. I finished the list and I was like, yes. But what was so- I didn't mention compliment. Festivals. <laughs> what was so great is the joy that everybody else took in the oh, fact that, that was- I was left out. It was a genuine oversight on my part. Uh, and I know that I went, you know, I know I would never say to anybody casually or professionally, oh, yeah, Michael Sarah plays in the game because I've never played with him. Oh, right, him. he was mentioned. He's played in the game two or three times. I played with him I, in I your game. I was never there. And you weren't there. Yeah. But so I mentioned he showed up and I hoped to play. So I, I literally just forgot to mention you. And so and so now Andy Ballin just loves that that happened. That it's fantastic. And so as a sort of a trade-off, I'm not actually recording this podcast. Oh, that's fine. No, that's not this a problem. Sort of like a is Zen it? exercise. Yeah, we're just going to have the conversation right. with the mics, but nothing's running. That's not. A, is that okay? If that's how you want to roll with this, that's fine with me. No, but jokes uh, on you, sir. I love <laughs> chatting. I'll just talk all day anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, Hank Azaria, who you know, folks from The Simpsons, where what, what have you done? Four thousand three hundred thirty-two voices on The Simpsons. Something you're off by, I think seven, and, um, plus or minus. Seven. I'm light seven. Yeah, I think you're light seven. <laughs> But more than that, Hank was a, this is just the truth. You were a legend. We went to the same college. Legend. We were there for a year at the same time. Yes. You were, you were senior when I was a freshman and you, right. you were incredibly legendary and famous at college as the best actor. And because of the size of my so, Johnson. That's not what they said. That's not what it was? No. Oh, I thought they, that's they, what it was. No, they said it was because you were good on stage. <laughs> oh. It was a totally different, uh, totally different thing. And then um, clearly has been in just uh, gr- many great movies TV shows and and is now making uh, has made the first season of and it's on just one of the most delightful pieces of entertainment of the last couple of years. I mean, you know how much I was rooting for this thing. Which yes, Brockmire of the short. You enjoyed the funnier die short of Jim Brockmire, uh, which is uh, the the funnier die short. Which is really. Do you want people to watch that before the show, or does it not matter? It does not matter. Do you, have you found people enjoy like co- just coming to the show without that? You don't need it because you. The, the the short is about Jim Brackmire, about uh, Dan Patrick and Joe Buck and and uh, um, Rich Eisen sharing 
as professional broadcasters about this other legendary guy who disgraced himself. And the the series opens with the event they're talking about, which is him getting blackout drunk on the air after walking in on his wife, having sex with other men, not just men, and then him flipping out and 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 losing his mind. Yeah, I mean the series which Hank showed me some of it early uh, is really great. Full stop. It, because it's hilarious, but it's also sad in a, a beautiful <laughs> way. Uh, really worth watching because it's that great combo. It's. Uh, he, you're someone playing a larger than life character, but 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 you're actually bringing us really into the, his emotional landscape in a way that's fucking entertaining. Uh, but but the the short, the short has become part of the vernacular of a group of my friends. Oh, has it? Yeah, we say dabbing at it all the time, <laughs> and. <laughs> that's one of the comic. That's Jim Brockmeyer discussing his own wiping technique. Black man, one of the few back-to-front wipers in the league. Very unconventional. Starts out dabbing at it. Likes to dab at it. <laughs> <laughs> that that moment and why where that hits in the thing uh, really is something that a, a bunch of us constantly uh, constantly refer to. But so people should watch it. Because you guys and, make a lot of duty, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's the reason, Hank. Yeah. But the thing of it is <laughs> that we are interested. Uh, here's the thing. I, I'm really interested in talking about how you got Brockmire to air, but I want to get to it because – it was one of these, it's almost like an episode of this show, which is all about sort of how people deal with the really difficult moments or the really great ones, because the journey to do it, it's on the air and it seems like, oh, that must have been easy, made the short and it's on the air. But I know the fits and starts that that thing had and what you had to yeah. do to keep it going. So I want to talk about it, but let's, let's, let's back up before we go forward. Um, and you are going to tell the Michael Mann story. I know you've told other ones, but you've kept the one. Well, well, now you've told it. So what do I need to tell? I for? told it once on something <laughs> nobody heard, and I credited. I said it was your story. Um, but can we just talk, where where did you grow up? Just for people who don't know and haven't heard the Mar- Mark Mark Maron. Join us if you just join us. Yeah, I mean, you did this incredible episode of Mark Maron's show, but it's like behind the paywall now, I think. And so some of this biographical stuff, I think, will be interesting for people who who didn't hear that or come into this, you know, seeing Brock Maron. Coming for, out. for what it's worth, I grew up in Queens in Forest Hills. Uh, my father's a Garmento in Manhattan. Uh, you know, upper middle class guy. I went to private schools in Queens. Went to Montessori when I was a kid. Uh, was grew up really was raised by the television. Found at a very young age I could mimic whatever I saw and heard on it, which was a lot of stuff. What did they think you were gonna like? When wh- what were your parents like? Sort of hopes when you were that kid and memorizing stuff off the TV and doing that. What did they imagine for you? Well, you know, like all Jewish parents, they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. And my grades were good enough to do that. I did a play in 11th grade and lost all concentration for my studies and realized then I was about 16. I think I want to maybe try, once I get to college, at least uh, uh, give a whirl to, I was interested at Tufts, where we both went. I wanted to try theater, I wanted to try journalism, I wanted to try psychology, but then my... My, my, any pre-med leanings I had with into psychology and did all three of those things there. And, um, you know, found, I just love, fell in love with the theater. Just, I was in the arena well, theater just constantly. Well, yeah, I, that's what I want to ask about because you, but the mimicking stuff, I didn't realize translated into wanting to be an actor until much later. I, I was going to ask they you seemed that. separate skills. The mimicking stuff was to amuse myself and crack my friends up. I thought I, the, the, the acting stuff was different. I mean, I knew I had a good ear for accents and things. But it wasn't until much later that I went, wait a minute, I almost uh, arguably until I 
walked into audition for The Simpsons at age 23, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. All these goofy voices actually make me employable on a certain level. Huh. You know, I had sort of kept the two separate in a way, not not quite. I'm not wasn't. Well, I'm sure when you were oblivious. rehearsing with people, you were doing the voices and cracking people up. It's what you do. I mean, you do it yes, all the time. But I didn't. I saw that more as a diversion and as fun. Like for example, I did stand up when I was like 22. It didn't occur to me too much to to make uh, mimicry part of stand up. I was just doing jokes and observational humor, and not very well, I might add. But <laughs> that's great. You're, well, it is like a superhero story. Like your superpower was invisible to you. Yeah. Yes, that's one of the so many ways that I am much like a superhero. Well, no, that's the only one. That and I fight crime and uh, and the big and hog I can fly. and the hog and the hog and yeah. the hog I have and that that I can fly. But the here's the thing: you uh, when you do these voices, though, did I? So I was thinking a lot about the voices because when we play cards, one of my great satisfactions is is if I can like throw one in the air and you grab it and then go for <laughs> twenty minutes. Well, yeah, which is uh, well, I'll. Not so hard to get me to do it. No, but a good one, like you know, giving you a good one that you can really go <laughs> with is very satisfying. Because you you do you take it so far, but you don't just do voices, right? Um, what I've noticed is because when people say, "Oh, he's a voice actor," what you do is you do real characterizations. You kind of become you. You yeah, become that. You stay in it. You think like that. It feels like I try to do that. I mean, as part of it is having you have an affinity for voices, which. Uh, I just did. Uh, can I mention another podcast? I was just talking to Adam Carolla, and he—I he, I, forget—he calls it tacoing your tongue, like yeah. which you can either do or you can't. You yeah. can either fold up. Ben, your, yeah. That's genetic. You either uh, mimicries like that. If you can do it, it's the easiest thing in the world. If you can't, it's completely impossible. And uh, then you know, which I—I I was always able to do. And then The Simpsons. Uh, I've had thirty years, literally, to 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 practice it and and uh you know uh, uh hone it and mine it and whatever and then i found that for me definitely if i find a voice a character voice the the, the characterization emotionality body language and even the way the character thinks and improvs will follow and then as i trained as an actor that got better as I went along, like through my 20s and 30s. You mean the connection of like the voice with the the rest of the tools of being an actor? Yes. I mean, I've talked about this elsewhere as well. And I'm always aware, as if everybody listens to everything. No, no it's I true. Don't. I, we don't have to repeat. No, no, but, I, but I'll, a- I'll mention, I won't go into a long detail, but the point is this, that I became an actor because, as a mimic becomes an actor because I, I want, I profoundly, not only could I imitate, but I wanted to be other people besides myself. I wanted to not be me, which they deal, you know, well, you certain teenage about angst, low self-esteem issues and things like that. And then in my 20s, I got into a wonderful acting class and this guy, Roy London, let me know that you know you can do that. But to be a great actor, to be a very good actor, you have to actually be yourself um, and reveal yourself to people, which I hated. And it took me years to do. I was very uncomfortable doing it. So a fellow um, Tufts Jumbo, Oliver Platt, who's a very dear friend of mine. See, to me, he's somebody, he's an actor who always had that. From age 19, just being Oliver was delightful as far as he was concerned, and he was happy to share that. You feel it in the work. Absolutely. For me, it was very excruciating. It took me uh, years and years and years. But once I included that as a layer into my work, I found that the Simpsons characters got funnier and they deepened. And, and the example I give is like, 
with Chief Wiggum instead of just thinking, well, how is it funny that Chief Wiggum would say this line? I think of that too, but it's more like, well, but also if I'm a cop, if me, Hank, is a cop and I'm catching a kid running out of a donut shop, having stolen money out of the cash register, how would I actually handle it? It seems sort of obvious, but to me it wasn't. You know, I had to really, and then marrying those two things is what. Yeah, I mean, don't you think all the the it's not just as an actor, but like the great great battle as a human being is to become comfortable in your skin. It may, like yeah, to actually be able to sit into yeah f- who the fuck you actually are. Right? Is a, I? It's it's like what separates. I think um, when you meet somebody and you're comfortable around them, it's because they are. Yeah, they've found a way to like live in who they are. Right. And that that you feel that, and it, it calms you down. I'm, uh, it's um, it's only I feel in the last few years that I can really say as an actor that I really feel that way. And don't uh, you think? I mean, I I'm a huge huge fan. I think I told you this when we first met. Um, again, I'm a huge fan of Huff. That show that you you and yes. Oliver made together. And I felt like the work you did on that show was quite different than anything I'd seen you do before. It was, but I was still in this is excruciating for me mode. Oh, you mean to live in it hurt? Didn't like it. Did not enjoy it. Felt I was bad at it. I soldiered through and I was proud that it came out as well as it came out, given that I was miserable doing it. Incredibly self-critical. Listen, I have the perfectionist thing badly. And it, that's not a good, people think, oh, yeah. Because that's the thing you say in a job interview. So tell me a flubbers. Well, I'm a perfectionist. And it's supposed to mean like I, but there's a big difference between striving for excellence and perfectionism. Perfectionism is crippling. The perfect is the enemy of the good is the slogan I believe in. Uh, it's terrible for an actor. And for me, I had it bad. And it, it's like an almost an addiction level obsession. And it's it makes one very uptight and rigid. And um, Well, it borders OCD. Totally. It borders OCD a little bit. Totally. And it's no fun. And as part of your job as an actor is you got to find some way to be enjoying it and playing a scene, not working a scene, you know. And because well, you can't listen. You can't listen if you were so consumed with the self and being exactly. who you are. You can't listen to the other person. Not to mention the way that, as you, as you well know, but folks might not, although I guess probably most do these days, but the way film is set up is, you know, even if you're going quickly – you know, any given scene, right? You're going to shoot it from, let's say, four different angles, say that. And in each, and if you're doing real fast, two, three takes per. That's not, that's pretty lean. Oh, yeah. That's moving. That's independent. That's an That's moving film. very fast. Yeah. So even that scenario is at least 10 or 15 times that you're doing the same scene over and over again. Plus the rehearsal before. Plus right rehearsal. Before. Exactly. So now you think about it. So let's say you've done it real well the first two times. Now what are you going to freaking do? I mean, just repeat yourself or try to recreate what you did that went well that was kind of spontaneous the first two times. Um, especially if you work out a performance and feel it's meticulous and right. And, you know, and I've done the scene the right way. I've figured it out. Then it's just, it, at best, it's boring, even if you are to yourself. And it took me years to... Uh, some I learned on Huff when I sat in the editing room a lot as a producer and some from talking to other actors that I respect and watching how they work the way they'll never do it the same way twice. It takes a lot of courage and to allow takes to um, to suck. It's Oh, yeah. But it's complicated to try to 
It's such well, a hard. Have yeah. you had this experience? Because you have done a lot of writing, directing, producing, where you and a lot of time in the editing room, a lot of time of watching performance on the day, and then looking at it in the editing room. How conscious are you of this? Where and and you know on a set, right on the day, you're going so fast. You know, even if you're paying attention, it's just got to keep moving. And so, an actor does it take, and on the day, you're like, eh, "That was weird," or "That wasn't quite right." Or whatever it is, right? And I'm glad we have the two earlier ones that were on the money because that third one was nothing or weird or I don't know what they were trying there. And then you get in the editing room and sure enough, most of that take was nothing, but there are two, three moments where they were trying the weird thing that's like, wow, look at his reaction on that moment. Or, boy, he said that line so weird there and the rest of the take, that was nonsense. But on that moment, I love it. And you cut it into the performance, right? Oh yeah, I mean, so, yeah. and so, and do are you also aware of like, boy, I really didn't appreciate in the moment what he did or what she did. I mean, I, until I'm now looking at it again in here. I've been doing this long enough, as you have now, that I'm able to notice that stuff when it happens very often because I like the weird, right moments. Right. It's what you're talking about is sometimes, you, you, sometimes you'll feel an actor is super connected to right. the thing sometimes they'll seem a little less connected right usually you'll use the connected take there could sure. be a moment in this other thing that's great and there we love pacino who i know you got to work with would always at the end of doing a thing say um can i just have a free one for fun right which we loved he would do it out of in most of the sizes not in the wide but he would do it in all the singles right before moving on and and it would just be different he would attack some ang at some angle the material in a way that was different from the way, and it didn't fuck up when the camera moved. He was able to revert to sort of like that setting of yeah, where sure. he started, but then would again give you a just I'm going to do a free one. Let me have a free one because I want to play and I want to try to, and it keeps you from being too rigid. Exactly, and it it, it keeps well, you, you alive. Have the I mean, I've talked about this a bunch in other places, so I, I don't want to get and, – and I already am self-conscious because it's a little bit over-analytical. Don't anyway. be too perfectionist. But, like, but let I, it go. It's I, all But I, I love analyzing this stuff. Me too. You, you're, you're there. It took me many to, – to, long story short, it took me many, many, many years to realize that your, your job as a film actor is just to offer choices. Moments and choices. Yes. And not the right one. And not even you have to worry about what's the best one or the right one. That will be apparent in editing. You know, but you but you just did the really good angry one. Okay, we have it. Instead of trying to perfect micro perfect that angry version you just did, do a delighted one, do a freaked out one, do a neutral one, whatever. I love this because it's applicable to writers and a huge to anyone who wants to do something in the creative in a in the creative world because. You're talking about being willing to take the risk of failing in the moment yeah. to get to the deeper, better place. Yes. It's why you're free. You know, the thing that I was a blocked, or I was blocked till I was 30, like couldn't do this stuff. And then I found the artist's way and I started journaling and that free writing journaling broke the curse of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. It was, the, I was right. blocked for the same. It was all about perfectionism. Right. So I fully relate to this. It was like, I, if it's not on first draft if it's not house of games it sucks right mammoth didn't write house of games on first draft. even if he did he's a super genius i don't have to be david mammoth right i just have to find out who i am as an yeah. artist and then find a way to produce that thing 
And get that on a page. And make mistakes and have it be wrong and weird and double back. And I learned this from Vin Diesel. He was in one of our, the first movie Dave and I edited. <laughs> you might be the only person yeah. who's learned anything at all from Vin Diesel. Uh, well, I, you know how many people go to those Fast and the Furious movies and learn how to handle a stick shift? Yeah, okay. And not, how stand do they, correct. Would you know how to put nitrous in a car if you didn't? Watch those movies. That's true. That is how I learned to put nitrous in a car. That's what you were saying the other night. I stand correct. But we were cutting this movie on the day in that movie. It was the first thing Dave and I had directed and we had never um, edited a movie before. And on the day, all the time, the guy looked like he did not know what he was like. So disconnected. There would be like a line or a moment and then think. And I remember looking at Dave like, well, and we get in the editing room and we watch even just the first assembly. And we were like, that guy's going to be one of the biggest stars. And he just is magical. Like, right. He, it all was there because film acting is creating these moments. Moments. I, I had the same experience. I have so many actors. Billy Bob Thornton, I watched work this way. Jeffrey Tambor. I mean, they have different vibes and different yeah. ways of going about it besides Blythe. Uh, but they don't care what you think of them in that moment. They really don't. They know they, they just do whatever they have to do to stay connected, engaged, and enjoying themselves. Yeah, the other side of that is Hopper, Dennis Hopper in the same. I remember was doing a scene with someone else, and that person, the other person fucked up a moment and said, can we cut? And Hopper said, nah, man, yeah. stay in it. You're gonna, the magic's going to happen. Totally. That, Listen, in Brock, one of my favorite moments in Brockmire is, you know, in, in, in Atlanta – where we shot, which is like the the place where everybody shoots now because it's the most financially friendly place to shoot. Yeah. And it'll change again in three years. It was right in New Mexico and it was Louisiana and it changes every few years. Vancouver. But there were, I, I'm not exaggerating this number, 57 television shows <laughs> shooting down there at the time that we were shooting. So it gets a little slim pickings on the crew, crew yeah. in some ways. And so there was a boom guy. There was a lovely guy, but he was pretty green. And Brian, it's the strangest habit of boom guy he would keep a pen in his so it would make his pants. Would, so when he reached up it would very often do this right you hear that noise there, folks listen to this the boom guy is res- the boom guy is responsible for capturing clean sound, sound recording and he's often if he reaches too high up doing this i'd be like dude maybe don't put the pen in the pants i don't mean to tell you your job but me, if I'm a boom guy, did I'm, you say it? Because you're I, eventually executive I producer and star of the show. But there's this moment in the pilot where Tim Kirkby, who's this great director, British guy, where, where Tyrell, who plays Charles, informs me that lucid is slang for when a woman does a man in the butt pegging. And I have a uh, with a strap on or whatever she's using, I guess. And I have this long reaction, and he just said, you know, we had done it a few times. He said, mate, on this one, just. Really hold the look, just like stare at him for way too fucking long. You know, just we'll cut it, but let's just see how long it can sustain. And so he says the thing, and I'm just staring at him, just aware of my own note here is just to hold this as long as possible. And sure enough, Ryan, five seconds into that look, over, I couldn't believe What'd it. you do? I look, it, it draws your eye. You know, and I, I looked at where the sound was from, and then, but what was great yeah. was, then Tyrell looked over his shoulder at what I was looking at, and it, it works. It's just great. It's just like it looks like I'm just trying to process the unprocessable. Yes. And then Tyrell's looking off at what I'm looking at. All I was doing was reacting to that. Now, if I 
inside I wanted to go, God damn it, cut. Are you kidding, dude? Really? You're going to drop a pen every nine seconds and you're the sound guy? But instead, you stay in like your friend Dennis Hopper said. And sometimes, look, sometimes it doesn't work out so well. And you'd be better off if the pen didn't drop. No, you're always making, I mean, all of it is um, the whole time you're making errors and just hoping, just trying to stay alive in it. And that some great, some moment will yeah. come for it. And actors prepare as all different ways. And, and to me, you're only trying to hold rigidly to the thing you came prepared with is almost like the only thing that almost never works. Totally. Oh, you know, it can work very nicely on take one and two to have a nice plan where you're super prepared because it's going to, by definition, take one and two feel pretty adrenalized and fresh all on its own. So that's fine. Yeah. Prepared. Yeah. Prepared, meaning you understand the psychology of the character and you have the words memorized. You should always be prepared. And and you've rehearsed and you know where your marks are and camera actually saw all of it and... You were able to be heard. Professional stuff. And you have the illusion. You actually are hearing the other actor do it pretty much the first time. So you're kind of honestly responding to what you're hearing. And you could even just listening to the other actor can kind of carry you through the first take because you're just kind of curious how they're going to do it. That that all makes sense. I've seen some actors come in, though, where they've rehearsed at home in the mirror so much that it on the day it's lifeless. And so it's stale, yeah. It's it doesn't feel like it's. I find that was more of an audition problem that I had. Ah, you over over preparing. You try to find you can under prepare an audition where you're just too nervous and tripping yourself up, or you can over prepare and that goes. Did, on. did you have? So I was gonna. I had this written down to ask you. You mentioned auditions. You know, from the outside, it doesn't seem like there was any struggle for you. Oh. I right. No, from the outside, right? You were a rock star college. You then very quick, 23, you got The Simpsons. Yeah. You were in, you know, by the time you were in your mid-20s, you got Quiz Show, Birdcage, and Heat. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I had an easier saying, path than most. But what did it feel like on the- like, That was my late 20s, by the okay, way. Okay, fine. I, yeah, I, late I turned 30 shooting Heat and Birdcage. Wow. Okay, but, right. But still, you know, I had I was on Herman's head when yeah. I was starting when I was 26, whatever. But like, so for you, did it feel, I mean, I, so you, you discovered the superpower about yourself, and this is the stuff I- I did want to want to ask, like, so you knew you had this skill. You could always make people laugh. Like, obviously, that's some that's something you just knew you could do. You had you discovered you found. I watched the commencement speech the other day, and the commencement speech you did last year. Yeah, and you you talk about finding your calling and and what it felt like. But like, as you were on that path, did you question it? Did you wonder if it was going to succeed? Were you nervous at all? Totally. So, what did that feel like? How did you? It's terrible. You oh, know, really? Yes. I mean, you, there's a lot of failure, even though, first of all, you know, when you know this, when you're young, six months feels, feels like, like forever. I mean, and now six months goes by and it feels like, you know, you had a cup of coffee or something. Crazy. But when you're 22, six months is like, oh, and you haven't had a job. Where you, were you? Yeah. What can you tell you? Like, set the, set, the, set the stage. What did you do after college? I went to New York and tried to break into theater, got nowhere for less than a year, but it felt like an eternity, bartended. Got fired from bartending because I was ridiculous. Well, no, no, no. Sorry. What do you mean you got fired from bartending? I, I lied to get the job. I didn't know how to mix any drinks. I didn't know how to make martini. The, the waiters thought I was kidding. They're like, I need a martini. I'm like, ha, how do you make a martini? They're like, ha, ha, ha. No, seriously. I'm like, What's no, 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 I'm not kidding. I don't know how to make a martini. I don't know, I don't know why they kept me on at this job. I think because I was nice and honest. And hardworking. Honest despite the lie to get the job. Well, yes. But honest, <laughs> honest. with money and, yeah. you know, things. Like, yes. Yeah, so, oh, about everything but my experience. I think they actually really were just strapped and needed 
a bartender, somebody they could trust yeah. on lunch shifts that they knew would rip the place off or something. And I don't know. Anyway, so but so you got but fired. one night I left. It was my job to lock the place up, and not only did I leave the whole place wide open with six hundred bucks of cash in the register wide open, I did everything but construct a neon sign flashing "Burglars Welcome." Idiots run this place. Um, <laughs> did it get robbed or you? It, oh no, it didn't. But oh, he okay. was like, "Get out of here." Yeah, you're done. And I called my dad. I was like, "Dad, I got fired." He's like, "Well, you want to be a bartender or an actor?" And uh, oh, that's a good piece of. That's a nice thing to say. Yes, and I went to L.A. I had at that point, it wasn't even a connection, but I thought I had some in with an agency there that ended up hiring me only because they felt guilty that they had said, oh, yes, come out. And then I did come out. And then a woman I was working with in New York, an agent read them the riot act for like not, for basically baiting and switching me. So they sort of threw me a bone and sent me on a few auditions and I actually booked one. And then you had an agent. And then they really started working for me in in earnest. When you went out there, did you know people? Did you have friends? My sister lived out in LA and I lived with her and my brother-in-law for the first like six months I was out there. Was there self-doubt or not? Because you're now quite a confident person. I, I, um, you know, people talk about this. I forget what actor was talking about this. You kind of, once or twice a year, you get encouragement. You get like a little job or you get, you know, an actor you admire goes, that was pretty good. Right. Or you just, or your acting coach goes, yes, very nice. You're getting this. And that's it. And if you're lucky, and you're, I was just talking to a young actor last night, a friend of mine, who has maybe one audition every three months. And, you know, I was getting like two, three a week. I would book nothing for eight months. Think about how much failure that is. Oh. But yet, that was fantastic. Even get those auditions. Was you had somewhere to go. You were felt like the illusion like, of making progress. Well, so it like, was a tremendous made. achievement to be, have an agent be sent out professionally. That in itself is no easy feat. But it's it's like it feels like a kick in the nuts every week. You know, you're not getting any of these jobs. And w- would you tell yourself because this is a lot of people listen are like trying to make this some kind of a leap to to get to the next place in their in their career. But like self doubt, like perfectionism, self doubt. That's the other side of the coin. What would you tell yourself to keep going? Like, what gave you? So yes, those one or two. I remember when I was trying to stand up, when one older comic once would look and go. That tag was pretty good. That wasn't bad. Right. Would, that would float you for two months. Yeah, for real. Easily. Two months. Yeah. Oh, he t- Todd Lynn said that tag was pretty good. Right. Or not, didn't suck. You know, your friend would go, no, he said it didn't suck. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say it was pretty good. But that would float you for a couple. But totally. what would you tell yourself about like that you could, how did you know you could really do it? Because you're a smart person who would know the odds. My brother-in-law was quick to point out that 0.01%, you know, I always, he would say, the, when I, the brother-in-law I was living with. Yeah. You're, yeah. Always point out to me. And I would say back to him, yes, Jeff, but if I don't try, I have 0% chance. Do you point it out to him now when you send him on vacations and things? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Good. But I, hope so. I, it's, I gave myself a time limit. I was like, well, it was, I looked at it mean? more like this. Like, I probably won't make it, but I'll regret it the rest of my life if I don't feel like I took a swing at it. Would working actor have been enough for you then? Yeah, I didn't even, you know, Brian, right, you can relate to this. Although you you sort of grew up in show business, even though it was the the recording industry. Yeah. But, so you had some semblance of what artists went through and what the business was like. Yeah. I I mean, I was a tremendous fanboy before that was a term of all of it, but I had no fucking idea 
what the ins and outs of it were. So I had, what I didn't know could fill Wikipedia and I didn't even know what it was supposed to look like. All I knew is I wanted to see if I was talented enough to get jobs as an actor. I didn't even know what that meant. Sustaining a career, working as an actor. I didn't, who knew? I just wanted to put it out there and try it. And much to my amazement, I would, I got jobs early, right. but very few and far between. Did it feel like that feeling when you, you described when you were 16, you did that play, how you found your calling? You know, when you're doing a play like that, even at, at school or in college, when you were like the point, the reason you were a legend is like you got all the parts and you were great in them. You know, there's that feeling when you're doing something. I know what it's like when I'm creating a thing and it flows where you're flying. Did you, you know, that moment of connection to the thing where you realize, oh no, I'm, I feel like I'm in the air. I'm, I'm aloft. Did you get that during that, like when you were try pra- audition? Did you have those moments where you were like, well, when I'm doing it, I feel meant to do it? Here and there. I mean, I remember doing one performance at Tufts where I felt like, whoa, I actually hit something there. But only one out of maybe a dozen or so over the four years. You mean the other times you just felt like I'm doing a thing, it's fine. I felt like, yeah, I just didn't know. I'm like, I don't know if I'm any good or not. I know I'm, I can do voices. I know that, but I didn't know what was going on. It would always like, it was like Chinese algebra to me. I just was like this complicated and I couldn't quite figure it out. And what do you think drew you back to it over and over? I had a deep, that I can't, what I discovered over the years was I get discouraged enough to quit a bunch of times, but I had this deep, passionate drive, almost insanely obsessive drive to keep going. And I just would lick the wounds on each thing and just go, well, what do I now need to do to either improve or get better or somehow redouble my efforts in some way that might make a difference. So your self-talk was about improving yourself. It wasn't like these people are fucking me over the business. There was some of that, but that lasts a few days and then that wears off. You go, well, uh, you know, if I don't, like being lucky enough to fail at audition after audition, you do start to get practiced. Get like, well, you start to be able to analyze it and break it down. Like I kind of overprepared that time. Oh, that's how I underprepared. And I started to create my own, you know, um, working. Uh, practice. Yeah, I, I decided. Best I, practices I, I, in a way for yeah, yourself. My, yeah, I decided what worked for me, which I, I was telling my young friend this last night. It's so hard when you have one audition every three months. You can't get on top of the process. It's like there's no learning curve. Well, now, you know, sitting on the other side of it, I didn't audition very much. I auditioned in college a bunch, but I didn't audition I haven't auditioned very much um, in my life, but being on the other side of it, what's amazing is how little, how impersonal, it doesn't really have anything to do with the person who walks in the door so much of the time. You've been, it's like, you're looking for a certain thing, a quality, a thing like, cause you right assume out of the hundred people, let's say 15 of them are good enough to get the part. Sure. They, they work. Have, one's more right than the other for arbitrary, arbitrary, just for whatever Dave and I have in our heads about Whatever wakes something up in us that makes it like, oh, well, that person's yeah, supposed to play Or more mundane things like, yeah, that guy's blonde, though. We need a dark-haired guy. Yeah, the, the scene partner, looked, that guy looks too much like uh, Damien or Whatever, Paul or right. doesn't look enough. You know, yeah. it could be a million different things. But you were able to tell yourself, like, oh, I can, I can get this going. Well, over time, thanks to my fearless shrink, uh, Phil Stutz, who I've talked about in many places, including yeah. Mark Marin, the guy who talks like this. I can curse, right? I've already cursed a Curse bunch. all you want. Yeah, all right. So if I shut the fuck up. 
uh, Brian. That's what he used to tell me all the time when I used to whine about this shit. And and I love that when Mark had him on the show and he sounded exactly, exactly like. Oh your no, impression. I've had years to perfect that impression. But um, he was helpful. He's helped a lot of actors sort of turn this audition rejection craziness of sh results of show business thing into a kind of spiritual practice. And that sounds like a lofty thing, in a, but I don't mean that in like a precious sense where you end up on a mountaintop removed from it. I mean like actually how you kind of make peace with what's pretty mind fucky about all this. And 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 what what I'm driving at is is you realize as an actor you're not really auditioning for the role you're going in for. Uh, if if I had auditioned for you right now for Billion, chances are. Chances are I would not be right for whatever I'm reading for. But for some role. Right. But if I do real well, giving you my version of me, you're going to remember me. That and it might be three years from now. All the time. Right. Yeah. That happens all the time that we pull some. Dave and I on this show, we pull people from who audition for other movies. You're 100% right. Right. You just come in and do the thing that you do. Right. And something great will come of it. We've, yeah. And it'll be the reverse thing where you you ask somebody, I mean, the great thing about this is I, I've offered you parts and I think the last three things I've done, you you haven't been able to do it. But, uh, so you don't even have to audition for me, Hank. You're, it, well, you just have to <laughs> say yes. Uh, All that right. is, you even just that can be very difficult say sometimes. Say yes at some point. And then, <laughs> well, I mean, to be, be fair, fine. billions you couldn't offer no, me because Showtime. Ray Donovan. Yeah. No, but Solitary Man. I did offer you a part in Solitary Man. You couldn't do it. Um, but I don't, believe me, I don't. So that and the Vanity Fair, those are the strikes against you. Right. Well, also, I have a third strike that I have to be honest about, which you already know. I haven't even seen Billions yet. I haven't watched it. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, it's awful. That's not even fair. I know, it's not nice. Well, if you maybe sometime you'll be on it and then you'll be able to be like, well, uh, it's better because I don't know. I'm just coming in as my well, character. The way I see, look, if it makes you feel better, I didn't see Ray Donovan until they offered me a role. I have too many things in the uh i mean the only so thing bad about so it is yeah you do see me about once a week it's true we spend like four or five do you hours know what the together. honest answer to this is there's so much stuff in the pipeline because of this wonderful golden age of television we're in it's so tied to my wife because it's the only she'd love it they'll love it i'm sure she'll love it but there's the only it's the only time we have with each other and so it's like you know uh, it's it's online for takeoff. I'll not I'll not bring it up again. Plus, I like binge watching things. Yeah, which well, I know I can you're going to have two seasons point. now to yes. binge watch, and then there'll be the third. Um, okay, what is an ideal? I you'd said this before, and it made me think of something that I'd actually written down, which are a couple of craft questions, which I haven't heard you talk about very often, and I want to lead into somewhere, which is what makes someone an effective director for you. What do you hope to find in a director? When is a director helpful as opposed to like you're fighting against the director? Um, I would say that to quote the great Mike Nichols, who talked like this, Brian, as you probably know, he would say a lot that great directing is 90% casting. And so that... In, uh, implicit in that uh, is um, that they trust you. The decision, the, ma the main decision they made was to hire you. And for the most part, they're going to let you do their thing. Now, then that said, I mean, Mike, when I work with him on the birdcage, maybe said three things to me. They were so genius. Okay. But Mike's Mike. That's like. Yeah. He's. Uh, he's literally. Picasso. was a genius. Yeah. I think that the directors I've had really enjoyed were the ones who really did know exactly what they wanted, had a very specific idea, 
and could either quote you chapter and verse about what they wanted and why, or just would able to be able to tell you, but also were very happy to let you do your version of that. Um, trusted when they were seeing enough of what they saw of what they needed from you. And then also once they got what they got, let you try your thing now. Yeah, the free one. When when they when a director's walking up to you after a take, are you usually happy to engage or are you like, oh fuck? It depends on when you ask me. Lately, very happy to engage. Because my whole thing is I don't care. Give me another way to do it. If you want me, and I don't care if it doesn't work. Right. You know what I mean? Like I I used to be the actor, especially in comedy, like you don't think a line works. You don't want to say it. I don't want to say this line. It sucks. And, uh, and I'm going to look like an idiot. And now I'm like, editing will decide whether it works work or not. Yeah. And if you're in a project huh. where you can't trust the director, producers, and editor, that they're not going to be able to discern the terrible line from the line that works, you're dead anyway. Well, that's no, the, flip no of the, to, yeah. the flip side of the cat. The, the great thing is their ability to cast. Yes. Is you choosing who to engage with exactly but sometimes you know you're doing a job for money or you don't always know who you're getting involved with but if you're in a situation where you really don't trust you might be right by the way the person you're working for may have great taste and they very well might cut in not the best take or right. a bad line reading or this worse version of the joke than, than than the alternative but you know you're not gonna that means you're dead and you can't fix it by by yeah. not cooperating. <laughs> I mean, you just said something about taking a job for the money, which we've all done. But when you got to the place where you never had to take a job for the money again, because you'd done yeah. so well financially, did it change things for you? I know it changed yes. things in your life tremendously, but yes. did it change things for you in terms of how you approached? Or did you feel unmoored for a while without having to service the ambition in that direct way? Uh, no, because about a decade ago, you know, Jimmy Miller, you know, the agent, Jimmy yeah. Miller, Dennis Miller's brother, brother. Yeah. I, I went in to meet with him just like, you know, give me some, what should I do? You're me, what should, what should I do? Like to start things up again or to, and his main message to me was, he goes, have you developed, have you cultivated relationships with writers that you like? I said, man, that really goes. And he, this was a quote, went, shame on you, shame on you. He said, you know, you have to do that. And so that combined with just deciding, well, what, what am I interested in? You know, I love documentaries and guys like Louis Theroux and, and, and Morgan Spurlock and wanted to try my hand at my version of that. So I started doing some things like that. Um, developing Brockmire just as a short and then as a movie and then as a TV show. <laughs> I enjoyed the process of developing those things and some saw the light of day and some didn't, but just the rolling up my sleeves and working on things that really mattered to me was like reward enough. So, so just talk about Brockmire in our time that Let's we talk have. about Let's, Jim Brockmire. We're going to, we'll finish up soon, but I want to talk about how, because the thing that, as I say, the, the short is one of the most delightful things ever. And then you guys really lived up to it in the show. Thank you. Can you but just talk about the, how challenging the ways in which you stayed with this thing and what it took to finally get it, to air well first of all you know the genesis of it was there were many characters that had one of which being this jim brockmark character this is like a decade ago 
I walked into my agent's like, I have all these characters. What do I do? I'm not on SNL. I'm not on Mad TV. And how would you develop that? How did you develop the character? I mean, it would just At be poker. you sitting around with poker doing the voices. Yeah, just, yeah. well, that, the Brockmire voice was since I was a teenager, just right. noticing that this was the voice <laughs> of most sports announcers, the generic baseball announcer voice, the guy who sold you the Ginsu and, and Popeil's pocket fisherman. And I don't know why is this the voice? I don't know. But I just got a big kick out of imitating it. And then I wondered, do these guys always sound like this in their personal lives when they're having sex with their girlfriends or fighting with their wives or drunk off their ass? Is it still coming out like this? They could, Harry Shearer pointed out to me like 25 years ago that these guys can say whatever they want as long as they give the count afterwards. I found that hilarious. That's the funniest. I've heard say that's the best. Um, it's insane. Like Rizzuto, Give an right? example of that, yeah. Well, like the Rizzuto, Phil Rizzuto example that we grew up with is him talking about the Italian meal he had the night before more than the game. Oh, man, I had sausage and peppers at, you know, at Vittorio's. And they bring it a, they bring it a garlic bread. You're, you're full before you even sit down at a meal as Johnson swings and misses. Is it a break? <laughs> You're like Phil. What, what are you talking about, man? Kind of, if you if you take to, but see, as me, we just accept this is accepted way to communicate if you're a baseball broadcaster but when you take two steps back and go what are these guys talking about it's lunacy it's like a form of Tourette's almost it's crazy so i thought that would be fun and then you know in this modern world we live in the, the digital world you know will ferrell and adam mckay they they started funny or die so you said to your manager i don't want to i, don't, so I, I interrupted agent. you you said to your age and i have these voices yeah, they said go to funny or die they'll produce ah. a short if and at that point i worked up like seven or eight i sat with a bunch of buddies of mine and created like a mini room and we and i said you know and some most some poker buddies like so what are the characters over the years that have stayed with you brock meyer being one and a few others and uh we worked up what is the basic comic premise for what could be a short for each of them it took us like a week and then i went and pitched them all to mike farah at funny or die and he identified Brock Meyer. He goes, that seems rich. Let's let's do something there. By that time, I was already on to the idea of a meltdown in the booth might be really funny. Awesome. And uh, we were, when you were already friends with Rich Eisen. Yes, already. He was one of the poker buddies right. at this point. So I knew to ask Rich to come. We, we knew like giving a mockumentary feel to it would be right. And um, then, you know, which kind of went from there. And uh, but, but how did you, when the thing got rejected, here's the thing. All of us have had the idea and people like it and then it gets rejected and then often people stop. You, well, this has been, how did you, this has been years to get this was, thing Well, then the it was a short. The short got successful. We developed it into a movie script, which got bought and we were five weeks into pre-production in Baton Rouge and then, and $600,000 down the drain and then the financing got pulled. Um the script was good, though, I thought, at that point. By that point, creatively, I felt like I was on to something juicy. Like, this thing works. It strikes a chord. It's sustainable. You know, uh, this thing is funny. I just felt like it would work. Um, so that's why I didn't give up on it. So when the plug was pulled, then you were like, well, fuck it. I'm just well, going to find another Well, then I spent another way. year or two trying to get it made as a film. Couldn't. By that time, somebody had the bright idea. This, you know, this might be better as a cable series. I wasn't ready yet to let that go, but then we, I gave up the ghost and said okay, and we reformulated into a TV pitch. And and IFC was the only place that bought it. Probably. So you actually went around with the guy with with the guy who wrote it. Yeah, and was he also the person who wrote? The short? With no, you? he came in after the short. Or the and not and the but he wrote the feature. He. he 
he did write the feature. That's great. So you guys kept stayed together yes. through and to then the show. He he had he was a young guy at the time, and <laughs> uh, this because it was like a decade. He started writing uh, those personal appearances that I would do for Rich Eisen NFL Network or for right. TBS, whatever. You know, he he was employed by Funny or Die at the time. What's his name? His name is Joel Church Cooper, and he's done such a beautiful job with this. I, it so exceeded my expectations. I mean, he did a great job and with the so movie. So is the show created by the two of you? Yeah, he's a, he actually has the created by credit because he really did all that heavy lifting. I have the, based on a character created by. Right. But it's really all, he broke that story. I mean, like, for example, as much as I gave him was, I, I should probably fall in love with a woman who works at the baseball team. And then he created a man to came back with this insanely well-observed alcoholic amazing unsentimental yet highly romantic love story so he he deserves all that credit but he you know he so he he did a great job and he at this point he had been written, writing for many years in the half hour form and he was kind of i think he was better in that medium than than even in the screen writing. well it's it's a magical entertainment it is a magical piece of entertainment so how many have you seen Four. Oh, you've seen the first four? Yeah. And then I decided to wait and watch until you watch Billions. Billions. Yeah, as soon as you watch you. Billions. As soon as I... Just uh, one Billions even? No, you got to rack the thing, I okay. think. And then we can <laughs> talk about it. But no, but I've watched four of them. And uh, and uh, like I say, the sadness is my favorite thing. Yeah, it's... it's because dark. you're doing the voice, but we really care about the guy, which is an amazing trick you've all pulled off. Joel, I didn't really... I didn't really... You know, you know this too. But you usually write the stuff you produce. I produced before. I wasn't writing these. And to me, what got, got put out in the short was about what I was going to do with it, which is funny, well-observed, pretty sophomoric, and, you know, good jokes. And they, it came out being more, the more it was realistic, the funnier it was, which surprised me. But that emerged in editing. But at script, we get the green light. We're going 900 miles an hour. I'm just checking boxes like funny, smart. I buy the story. Good, 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 good. And then as I'm working on it as an actor, I'm like, is this me or is this quite um, emotional? Yes. <laughs> you know, like I actually have to act this thing. It's very dark and sad. Yeah. And I had to ask. I was like, am I right? Like, is this kind of the tone of this? And, I, and our director, Tim, was like, oh, mate, it's serious pain, man. <laughs> It's his. Don't leave that out. It's all. It's fucking fucked up. That's why it works. And I was like, okay, all right. And then it was Joel, like over delivering. Like I don't know, I don't know where that came from. But realizing that this guy's a tragic figure, to me, look, the alcoholism of this guy was really just there to justify why he'd freak out like that on the air, and it would be funny. I didn't really think about. Well, now wait a second. This guy's a seriously fucked up alcoholic. So, all right, last thing, I'm going to let you go. Uh, there's so much more I want to ask you about. But um, I want to ask, because you're, one thing that you don't talk about that much in, in public is how aware you are of the world and what's going on and how curious and interested you are. You made your documentary series about the effect yeah. of celebrity in the world. You've, you care about, I don't want to even say politics, you care about like the the you care about it now. Yeah, politics <laughs> doing, but you care about the politicians not ruining the world. And one thing I've noticed is the way, because you know, being a dad is the the central thing in my life. Like it is the the raising yeah, my me kids. Too, I know. Sure. Well, that's what I've so like. I've had the privilege of watching you in moments with your son, and I've noticed just how attentive, focused, loving you are. And he's just an incredibly sweet young man. He's amazing. A sweet boy. Even I don't know him other than I see him for seven minutes on Saturday or Sunday night. Yeah, but. 
how do you think about raising a kid in uh, with the kind of privilege that he has in this time? Do you talk about it? Like, how do you, because it's different than your, your childhood, you know, you were raised, how do you Decided think about that. the, yeah, all that stuff. How do you think about, oh, because he's so sweet natured and such a special kid. I'm like, how do you think about maintaining that in this world and the world that he's coming into? You know, his mother and I, the lovely Katie and I, we, we do think about it. And I think it takes active thought. Me too. And especially uh, growing up in privilege in, in New York City, going to a school like, uh, you know, he like goes he to. Goes to yeah. uh, you need to have uh, plans in place, strategies in place to like, you must do chores, my young man. And no, 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 this is the value of a dollar. Like if you want that toy, that means you saved up for it and you buy it. And those are like obvious crass examples, but that on down to, you know, emotional equivalents of things like that. And, you know, we, we took a lot, we took like ride classes and, Parenting, I, I feel awkward saying that parenting is a verb. That only existed as a verb for the last 20 years, by the way. Our parents didn't do parenting. No, they threw the Dr. Spock book at you. Yes. That was about They the- raised children. They raised ungrateful little brats is what they did. But there is a lot of good information out there now that is really helpful as far as uh, raising a emotionally balanced kid. Like one of them being... Make sure they know that you mean what you say and say what you mean, and you it can be counted upon, and they'll return the favor kind of thing. Stuff like when they're little, you know, every kid goes through that phase of separation anxiety where they yeah. just flip out, and they usually have two or three phases of it, right? It goes and comes. Um, it's tempting when they're in a phase like that where they freak out when you're leaving to sneak out, right? Like, oh, they're distracted with blocks. I'm going to leave right now. And it's completely instinctual, perfectly reasonable uh, instinct. But we were told by people we trusted, don't do that because it sends a double bad message. First of all, it's okay if they have feelings. Like, what's so bad about that? They're allowed to flip out? That's fine. Second of all, that's a lie you've sort of told them. And if they look up and then you're gone, trust. what's up with that? As opposed to, I'm going to leave, like, even though they were busy and you say to them, wait, wait, look at me, I'm going to leave now. And then they flip out. Even though it was bad news, they get the message, the better Uber message is whether it's good news or bad news, you can trust what I'm telling you. And I'm transparent. And, yeah. you, you know, little things like that that Katie and I, frankly, because we had so little trust and faith in ourselves as parents, we made it our business to try to learn as much as we could. I think that made a difference with the kid. And I think if you, I think more people should con- consciously try to learn stuff like that and enact it. Yeah. People ask me these parenting questions and I always say, the mere fact that you're asking tells me you're going to be fine. Yeah. Just parent with intention. But I noticed it. Yeah. Like I say, I've never talked to you about this stuff, but I watched you with, I watch you with them. There's little moments and I could tell that you're locked in in a way that's touching to me. And it's really great. Yeah. I for love him. People get in there, you know, cause, and don't talk to them like they're, we never, we were told like, speak to them. Don't talk baby talk to them. Give them credit. Like they can't understand the nuances, you know, of, uh, of politics when they're three, but. Talk to them like they're human beings that can understand. God, one of the great things must be that that kid gets your, the benefit of your, those voices of yours all the time. And I'll tell you one fun story yeah. about that. Robin Williams, when we were pregnant with young Hal, we were promoting Night at the Museum 2, featuring the late, great Robin Williams as Teddy Roosevelt. 
Katie was big, big pregnant at the time. And Robin was so sweet. Did you ever, did you ever get to know Robin? I, yes, I spent an afternoon with him and I loved him. Okay. He was that kind of guy, that rare kind of movie star that took a joy in like a pregnant woman being in the room sure. and would stop what he was doing to not only do five minutes of hilarious stuff about her pregnant belly, right? But then really ask, how you doing? How's your pregnancy? How's it going? You know, he really was that thing that he seemed. You know, he was. He, yes. he loved people and loved taking interest in people and, and and asking them about themselves. How many movie stars you know do that? So he's doing all these voices, and I said, "So are, are, are the kids just enthralled all the time?" He goes, "Oh no, I, I was banned. You'll see. They won't let you. He won't let you do voices until once he's past a certain age. He will, but you'll see. You'll see. I'm right. When he's little, three, four, five, you won't be allowed to read stories and voices. And he was." Dead right. True? Yep. I would, you know, launch into, I mean, I'd cast, nothing made me happy. Like, for example, read The Wizard of Oz and cast it as Simpsons characters. Wow. You know, like, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Wiggum was a cowardly lion and uh, Moe's the scarecrow. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, Principal uh, Superintendent Chalmers was the great and powerful Oz, of course. And how's like, Daddy, no. Oh, just read it. He just wants you. Some of it was a scary thing. It yeah. freaks them out a little bit that all of a sudden you're not you yourself. And it's a little it was distracting to him. He wanted just to hear the story. But now he really loves it. And then for a while it was he had to have control of the voices. Like some of them would scare him. <laughs> you know, if all of a sudden, you know, there's a lot of villains you encounter in these stories. And if you start talking like this to your child, it freaks him out a little bit. But now he now he's way in. He like really sometimes I'll even get notes. Well, there you go. That sounds a lot like the lion guy from the last one. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my lion. I'm so sorry. I'll uh, I'll try. I'll rethink it. I'll reconceive it. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, Hank, thank you for doing this. People should watch Brockmire. Watch Brockmire. I'll come find you. I'll throw a baseball right out at your nuts. I can't. That's it. You can find <laughs> Hank is on Twitter at, uh, what's your name on there? Hank, Hank Azaria. Azaria. Yeah, at Hank, Hank Azaria. Azaria. I decided to go with that. That's creative. Thank you. Uh, don't waste time on that. And I'm at Brian. I got Cobb. that blue check mark. You know that means you're real and exist in the world. That's how you'll know that it's actually <laughs> Hank. Blue check mark. All right, everybody. Uh, Thanks. Best actor of, of our time. See you next. I'm the greatest time. guy. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>